You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. Grateful to the Lord um, that you are able to join us um, with, as here at Sojourn Church Carlisle, uh, which in my opinion is uh, one of the best, if not the best church in Louisville. Um, we are thankful for you for being with us today. Um, right here is a connect card um, that we would love for you to fill out uh, for us to get to know you. I do see some new faces here today, and we do welcome you, and we're grateful to God. Um, that you are here with us. Um, If you don't mind, fill out this Connect card. Let us know um, that you are with us today. Let us know how we can pray for you, how we can serve you. Um, It will be a joy and delight to do so. Um, If you're a member here, as always, we encourage you um, to share prayers. Since we've been encouraging you to write prayers as members, we've seen more and more prayers coming in. And uh, we are thankful to God for that. And we want to let you know that we are a church who believes in the power of prayer. Um, So we're not just asking you to write this on a piece of paper. We're asking you to allow us as the church to come alongside you in your struggles, um, in your pains, in your sorrows, so that we might bear our burdens with one another um, and take them to the Lord uh, where they belong. And we would ask that you would help us in that way by just letting us know what's going on and how we can pray for you. Today uh, marks a new journey for us as we embark on our new sermon series entitled Neighboring Well. I am very excited uh, to be able to go through this series as we continue through our value of missionality of what it means to be on mission for Jesus. Um, And what I mean by that is not simply uh, going overseas, but I mean going to your next door neighbor, showing up where God has placed you, whether that is in the seminary or if that's in uh, the library or a police station or a medical facility, wherever God has placed you, what does it look like for you to embody and embrace the love of God where God has strategically and sovereignly placed you? We're going to jump into this series by looking at a very familiar text. And I will admit from the very beginning that it's hard to preach from a familiar text because it is familiar. And we think that we understand the story or we think that we kind of understand all the nuances of it. So what I would ask for each of us is to have an open heart um, and a great patience, an open heart to receive God's word, a word that many of you have already probably know better than I do uh, because you've learned it since you were little children. Um, but also have patience because today is Family Sunday, and we have little ones with us as well, amen? And we want to be gracious to them um, as they are being gracious with us, even being here as opposed to being in Sojourn Kids. So would you pray with me, and then we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, we do love you, and we thank you. Uh, We praise you that you are a gracious and kind God. We thank you, God, that we can neighbor well because you have neighbored well. You have shown us what it means to live as an embodied person in this world. You have perfected it, Lord, so much so that you were resurrected on the third day um, so that we might be resurrected from the sins that burden us. Jesus, be the great teacher this morning. Show us through your word. Enlighten our hearts and give us courage to obey it in every aspect of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. 
And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? This is a question that has plagued the fabric of our society for many, many centuries. I don't have to tell you this, but we live in an age where the sanctity of life is questioned, doubted, and argued by political figures. We live in an age where the beauty of marriage is often ignored and at worst neglected by most. We live in a time where abuse is rampant in the church, in our homes, and in our very institutions that we lead. We live in a time where those whom God has given to protect us are often the very ones we identify as our perpetrators. We live in a time where living in isolation apart from community is seen as being normal and good. These times that we live in have the postmark of Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 that provides this warning for us, woe to those who call good call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And the uncertainty of our times has left us with this prevailing question, and who is my neighbor? Now, here are some quotes that speak to the misguided reality of being someone's neighbor. You know, some, per, well, some people see like this quote here. It says, a good person is a fellow who smiles at you over the fence, but doesn't climb over it. Anybody know who that is? Wilson, yes, from Home Improvement. Other, other of us think of neighbors in this way. All human beings are my neighbors. We share the same planet, right? For those who don't know, this is an old TV show, cartoon called Captain Planet. Go, ask your parents about it later. If they were cool, they watched it, okay? I'm like, I'm just going to say that. Other of, us, other of us have this kind of aspect of neighboring. Just be a good neighbor and, and leave me alone, Right? See this with Carl and the great show Family Matters. If we're talking about neighboring, we have to talk about the ultimate neighbor, right? This fellow right here. The definition of a good neighbor is someone who is, who is to be trusted, a curious, friendly source of help when help is needed, and someone who can, you can count on, and someone who cares. Who is my neighbor? You know, with all this ambiguity of how do, we how do we navigate the complexities before us, if no one really knows what a neighbor is or what a neighbor entails, how do we navigate this? How do we navigate the complexities that lie before us? See, one of my greatest joys and one of my greatest desires is for our church to develop and maintain a trajectory of relationships. And you've heard me say it before, but I want to put it on the screen so you can see it clearly of what I'm talking about. 
We have to have a trajectory of relationships. One of my mentors and professors in seminary gave me a term that became very useful to me to this very day. He told me and showed me how some people are called friends, but he also gave me a category of some people just being acquaintances. <laughs> friends are those who are, are close to you and whom you know and who you share life with. Acquaintances are those um, who are yet to be friends, right? But have the potential to become that. It's one of the most helpful categories that was given to me I was out, as I was navigating seminary in my first couple of years. This trajectory also speaks to that to, to some degree. We want to be people who go from this aspect of understanding people to be strangers, who then become neighbors, who then become friends, who then become visitors, and then who become family, family being, of course, being a part of the family of God. A stranger is simply this, I don't know you at all. I have no information about you. You are a person who I maybe like to get to know, but I, I really don't know you. A friend, a neighbor, excuse me, is someone who looks familiar because I see you often. A friend is someone who's a trusted confidant in your life. Someone you can depend on if needed. A visitor is someone whom I'm willing to share life with you. I'm willing to worship with you. And then a family member is we're looking and hoping in Jesus together. You know, one of my favorite definitions for what it means to be a neighbor versus being a stranger is this. Is a stranger is anyone I can serve. A neighbor is whom I choose to serve. It's whom I choose to serve. You know, in our story today, we witness Jesus directly addressing this infamous question. And who is my neighbor? I love what Place for a Purpose has to say about this in chapter 2 of their book. They write these words. It says, our answer to the question, who is my neighbor, reveals what we love, what we fear, and where we draw our lines. It reveals what we love, it reveals what we fear, and it reveals where we draw our lines. You know, unfortunately, I learned very early in my life that not all lines were drawn for me, that not all lines were drawn to be in my favor. You see, when I was a little boy around the, eight, around the eight, uh, age of eight years old, I had to receive the talk from my mother about being an African-American boy living in a predominantly non-black community, and it went something like this. My mother said, James, you're getting bigger now, and not everyone in this world will continue to see you as the cute little boy that I know you to be. So when we enter the local grocery store or the local corner store, you're not allowed to touch things without permission. I don't want anyone to accuse you of stealing anything. You must use your manners at all times. And you must make sure not to look in, too intimidating because people won't see you as a black boy. They will now start to associate you as being a black young man. 
So the question remains, who is my neighbor? Notice with me that this question isn't just about who is my neighbor, but it's also a question of who's not my neighbor. How do I know this? Well, look with me specifically in verses 25 through 29. The words of Christ are expressed to us in this way. It says, then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what, must, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told them, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Notice with me the way that Jesus characterizes this man. Jesus characterizes this man in three specific ways. He describes him um, as a religious man. He's an expert in the Mosaic law, verse 25. He defines him as a rebellious man. He's trying to not just talk to Jesus, he's trying to justify himself before Jesus, verses 25 and 26. But lastly... We also see him as being a self-righteous man. He's trying to justify himself, and he's trying to test Jesus in the words that he's sharing with him. So how will Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to this man's antics and his prideful nature? One thing about I love about King Jesus is it takes a lot to make him intimidated. He doesn't shy away from hard things or hard conversations. He's not afraid to look the bully in the eye, knowing that they are trying to test him and still provide a lesson to the very one who's trying to test him. We see this in verse 30. In verse 30, it says, Jesus took up the question and said, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Notice here that Jesus responds by presenting this arrogant man with a parable, which is simply a story that has a much greater message embedded into it. And in this parable, Jesus answers this man's question, and who is my neighbor, by providing three examples of what a neighbor is not, and one example of what a neighbor is. Jesus is intentional to present three relatable characters to help us know and to help explain to us what a neighbor is not. And those characters are the lawyer, the priest, and the Levite. He gives them as an example to see exactly what it means not to be a neighbor. Let's begin by analyzing the first character witness here, the lawyer. You see, from the lawyer's example, we witness the first aspect of what a neighbor is not. The first example that we see and the first lesson that is learned is that a neighbor's love knows no boundaries. That a neighbor's love knows no boundaries. In other words, 
A neighbor is someone who doesn't withhold their love from another person. Why is it important to have love without boundaries? Why is it important not to withhold one's love from another person? Well, historically, the division between Jews and Samaritans was intense. And to say that these two nationalities were enemies would be an understatement indeed. The Samaritans were hated and despised enemies of the Jewish nation. Where do we see this hostility? Well, look with me at verse 36. In verse 36, Jesus asked this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Notice here the lawyer's response to Jesus' parable. For this lawyer, the greatest shock in this story is not the exploitation of this man's life. The greatest shock in this story is not the cruelty, violence, and abuse transcribed by these thieves and these robbers. The greatest shock in the story is not the neglect of this man's health and welfare from those who pass by. The greatest shock for this lawyer, this expert in the law, is clearly revealed in the identity of the one who actually helps him, helps this man in his time of need. And here's the problem that he has. It's not whom he expects, and more importantly, it's not whom he desires. So let, let me ask you, where in your life are you walking in dis- disappointment with God? Where in your life are you walking in frustration? It may be right here today, even as you are trying to help out your babies with Family Sunday. Where in your life Are you walking in anger simply because God hasn't responded in the way you had hoped and maybe in the way that you have desired? How do you respond when God doesn't meet your expectations? More importantly, what do you do? (laughs) What do you do with a God who doesn't always meets your expectations of him. Now, I have to admit that I haven't always walked well in my own disappointments with God. I have many stories, and my family has many stories. My wife has many stories that they hopefully won't share with you until I'm long, long and gone and in the grave. You know, although it wasn't my mother's intention, her instructions to me as a little boy left me with a hatred towards people who didn't look like me, who didn't dress like me, who didn't act like me as a young black boy. And consequently, in my young and adolescent mind, I grew a hard yet unnecessary line between those who belonged and those who didn't belong in my life, those who looked and acted like me and listen to the same music that I listened to. And listen, growing up in Detroit, Michigan, which had a population at the time of 89% of African Americans, it was very easy for me to make that logical, to draw a logical line of who was to be accepted and who was to be rejected in my life. My adverse thinking came to fruition a few years later 
You see, at the age of around 13 years old, I transferred schools the summer before my eighth grade year. I went from a co-ed, predominantly black school that I loved, called Jezu, to a predominantly white, all-boy institution that I hated, <laughs> called U of D Jesuit, or University, University of Detroit Jesuit High School and Academy. Say that three times fast. Therefore, I entered my new school resentfully. I entered my new school, and I was determined to prove my mom's decision to transfer me wrong. <laughs> and I was going to do that by flunking out. <laughs> I, I, I refused to do my work. I refused to turn in the things I needed to because I wanted to show, and I wanted to let my mom know, listen, you may think this is good for me, but it's not good for me. We all respond to the disappointments in God that we have with God in many different ways. Look with me at verse 37 to see the lawyer's frustration with Jesus' question. In verse 37, it says, the lawyer regrettably responds in this way to Jesus' question earlier about which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor? He says in verse 37, the one who showed mercy to him. The one who showed mercy to him. Now, no, listen, notice what's happening here. This expert in the law, this lawyer, this person who clearly understands what it means to love God, right? He said it all right. He said it already. It, the, the, the greatest command is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. He clearly understands what to do, but he clearly does not understand how to apply it. The lawyer can't swallow his pride long enough to even acknowledge that humanity of this Samaritan man. And instead, he passively, aggressively refers to him as the one who showed mercy. Couldn't even mention the man's name. Couldn't even give him enough dignity to be mentioned as the answer. From this lawyer's example, we witness the second aspect of what a neighbor is not. If the first aspect was a neighbor's love knows, uh, knows no boundaries, then the second one is this. A neighbor is someone who doesn't hold a grudge against another. A neighbor is someone who doesn't hold a grudge against another. In other words, it's impossible to love someone when you're constantly holding a grudge against them. Listen to me. I'm trying to help some marriages out right now. Please listen to me. It's impossible to love someone when you are constantly holding a grudge against them. I'm trying to help some parental relationships when I say this. It is impossible to love someone when you're holding a grudge against them. Although it doesn't perfectly fit with this scenario, Jesus actually mentions this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 25, when he says these words, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If the first and second 
aspect of what a neighbor is not is best exemplified in the lawyer. A lawyer, a neighbor's love knows no boundary, and a neighbor is someone who doesn't hold a grudge against another. Let's continue by analyzing the second character witness in the story, the priest. Look with me in verse 31. It says, a priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Notice, the priest saw this man from afar, from a great distance, and he had a premeditated decision. He made a premeditated decision not to help this man. From this priest's example, we witness the third aspect of what a neighbor is not. So number one, a neighbor's love knows no boundary. Number two, a neighbor is someone who doesn't hold a grudge against another. But number three, a neighbor is not someone who willfully ignores someone, another person's pain and sorrow. A neighbor is not someone who willingly ignores another's pain and sorrow. You know, going to UAD Jesuit, it was hard for me. And like I said, I would on purpose, not turn in assignments and not do things to show that I wasn't smart enough uh, to, to be among the elite and the brightest. I remember one day specifically sitting in algebra class, and I, I would look like this kid right here. I remember in algebra class struggling and, and not raising my hand and not asking questions. And unbeknownst to me, my math teacher, Mr. Sharp, he started to take notice of me. He started to notice, and he started to call on me in class to ask certain, answer certain questions. He started to see my potential for math. He started to take an interest in me, not only academically, but also athletically. He encouraged me to try new things, and he wouldn't allow me to waste his precious time nor my God-given potential. And look, I, I am grateful. I, I'm grateful for uh, Mr. Sharp. I'm grateful for people that God has placed in my life like Mr. Sharp who wouldn't allow my hard exterior, my tough exterior, to keep them, to keep me from the God-given potential he had given me. I'm thankful for Mr. Sharps, teachers like Mr. Sharp, who sees the pain, but they also see the potential. I'm grateful to God for that. Because a neighbor is not someone who in intentionally avoids the pain, the anguish, the neglect, and abuse of another by ignoring someone's pain in order to maintain their own joy. When Mr. Sharp tried to talk to me, did I first want to talk to him? No. Did I give him the cold shoulder? Yes. Did I give him excuses of why I couldn't do the work? Yes. But you know what Mr. Sharp did? He didn't give up. He continued to press in. He wouldn't allow the excuses that I had given him to create distance between us. He continued to love me and pursue me and mentor me despite my pain, 
my anguish and my anger with God and even with my mom's decision to send me to another school. I think this is a good question for us, church. Where in your life are you neglecting your neighbor's pain, sorrow, and abuse? Who's the person in your life that you're constantly sending to voicemail? (laughs) Who's the person that you walk the other way as soon as you see them walking down the hall? Whose text message have you left unread simply because you don't want the drama? So far, we've learned what a neighbor is not. A, neighbor, a neighbor's love knows no boundary. A neighbor is someone who doesn't hold a grudge against another. A neighbor is not someone who willfully ignores another's pain and sorrow. Let's continue by analyzing the next character witness here, the Levite. Look with me at verse 32. It says, in the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. You see, while the priest practiced willful disdain, he saw from afar and made a premeditated decision not to interfere. The Levite practiced willful disregard. He arrived at the place and saw. He was curious enough to get close enough to the situation, but his love for this man didn't compel him enough to enter in. I don't have a lot of situations like this in my life, but I'll share you one of the ways that God has called me to enter in. At the time I was living in Maryland, um, and working in Rockville, Maryland, and if you know Maryland, the traffic is always, they have one aspect of traffic, and that's just jam-packed. Everything is jam-packed 24-7. We were driving home on a rainy day, so that means that the congestion of the uh, traffic is even multiplied even more because everyone's trying to leave work early to get home. As we were driving down the pike, if you will, Rockville Pike, 355, if you know it, shout a woo-woo, that's okay, woo-woo. As we were driving down the pike, the Lord put it on my heart to, um, he pressed upon my heart that if I saw someone stranded, how would, I res- how would I respond? And I obviously at the time, I was like, oh, Lord, man, if I saw somebody stranded or needed help, even in this thing, I would help. Like, I would, I would get out my car and help. And as we were driving, sure enough, not even two streetlights later, in the opposite lane, in this jam-packed traffic, there was a car that stalled out. It was a young Hispanic woman with children Everyone was going around her, and no one was wanting to help. And it's almost like God tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you remember that question? (laughs) I then told my wife, I said, listen, babe, I don't know why, I don't know how, but look, I want to help that lady out. So we pulled the car over, and I ran across the lane, and the lady asked the lady about the problem. I'm probably the worst person to help her because I'm not a mechanic, but I do have muscles. So I used my muscles to put the car in neutral and then push the car out the way, at least so that other cars can get around. And as I helped, you know what else happened? As I stopped my car and I start pushing, you know what else happened? Other people start noticing and then they had jumped in. 
And soon, as soon as I looked, in about five minutes, it went from me pushing this SUV down the road to about three or four or five other men getting out their cars and helping and pushing this heavy load. And all I could say was, thank you, Jesus, because I know my muscles are good, but they're not that good to push a car in neutral up the pike. But do you see the beauty of that? See, see the beauty and the goodness of our God? That as we obey him in the simple things, the ways that he's calling us, that he also, it, it not is only to honor and glorify him, yes, but it also encourages others to do the same. Now listen, every car that I see, I don't stop for. So please, if I see your car, I'll stop for you. But every other car, I don't, I don't stop for all the time. But that day, in that moment, for some reason, I really believe the Lord had me and called me to stop. And I did my best to obey in that moment. So far, we've seen what a neighbor should not be. Let's now turn our attention to what a good neighbor looks like. Look with me in verses 35, 33 and 35. It says, But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day the, he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you Spin. Notice, notice, notice the progression of this is very important. Please don't fall asleep on me here. Notice he not only saw the man, but he also responded with compassion. He not only saw him, but he responded with compassion. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant for a lot of different reasons, but let me just try to Explain it this way. Notice the Samaritan circumstance. This, this, this Samaritan is actually journey, journeying and taking a journey towards an unlikely place. He's traveling towards Jerusalem. And listen, I already talked about the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. So logically, here's the implied question. Why would a Samaritan be traveling towards Jerusalem? Think of all the, one, the danger that's on the road. This road is notorious for having these occurrences happening of thievery and robbery. It's not unbeknownst to this man why this would happen on the road. What confuses him is why a Samaritan is involved. So notice the Samaritan's circumstance. Notice the Samaritan's correspondence. He came up and he took notice. He was not willing to turn away from a hard, distracting, and unexplainable situation. But also notice the Samaritan's compassion. He has compassion for what he saw. His head turned towards the brokenness he saw and experienced and not away from it. And last but definitely not least, notice the Samaritan's care. He acted upon his compassion by investing his resources toward the restoration of this man's brokenness, he allowed his compassion to be manifest through his obedience to rectify this man's brokenness and his broken situation. You know, we said this before, and I want to say it again because I think it's worth repeating. 
that charity should always proceed with compassion. That charity should always be preceded with compassion. You know, as we think about this aspect of compassion, I want you to think of something that we all can probably relate to and something that I lose often, iPhone chargers. <laughs> I can't keep an iPhone charged. So listen, any birthday or pastor or anniversary, if you want to give me a, a charger, listen, I'll take it because I probably lost it and I'll probably need it. I promise you. But compassion is kind of like the electricity in the walls, right? Um, having compassion is like us plugging in that iPhone into the wall and having that surge of energy or that surge of compassion for someone. But listen, compassion without action means nothing. We can be plugged into the wall and receive the electricity, the juice, if you will, but if you don't take that plugged in iPhone and plug it into the source of the phone, the phone doesn't receive the benefit. You can receive compassion all day. You can have a compassionate heart. You can really, really care about things, really excited about things. But if it's not plugged into the source that it was intended to be plugged into, that source only remains a source for the charger and not for the phone. So what specific ways from this man's example, from this Samaritan's example, does it mean to be a good neighbor? What does it mean for us to take our charger, charger, put it into the outlet, and then connect it to our iPhones? What does that look like? Well, it looks quite simple. It looks by looking at this man's example of what a neighbor is. And here's that simple definition. A neighbor is simply anyone who sees and responds to a situation with love and compassion. A neighbor is simply anyone who sees and responds to a situation with love and compassion. This is the fourth lesson that we'll take away from today, is that a neighbor, a neighbor willingly takes on the responsibility of others. They act to meet someone else's need. They act to meet someone else's need. Love with the Life Application Study Bible says about this. It's talking about the wounded man and how everyone saw him differently. It says the lawyer treated the wounded man as a topic for discussion. The robbers treated him as an object to be exploited. The priest treated him as a problem to be avoided. And the Levite treated him as an object of curiosity only the Samaritan treated him as a person to love, as a person to love. So, so what's the point of this parable? What, what's the point of everything we're looking at? Look at me at verses 36 and 37a to get the answer. So Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed him mercy, he said. Notice here, Jesus' command is clear, it's concise, and it's coherent. Jesus is essentially saying this, be a good neighbor to others rather than asking who is worthy to be your neighbor. Be a good neighbor rather than asking who is worthy to be your neighbor. 
Again, Place for a Purpose, I think, has a great synopsis of this. It says, when the Bible expert asks, who is my neighbor, Jesus responds with a different and better question. Which of these three prove to be a neighbor? The first question points outward, placing the emphasis on the one who was worthy of receiving help, who's in and who's out. The second question, Jesus' question, points inward, placing the emphasis on both the heart and actions of the one doing the neighboring. Now listen to me, I might step on some toes when I share this, but I, I, I felt like the Lord put it on my heart to share it. You know, I love the hospitable nature of our church. I love the way that we open our homes to one another. I love the way that we serve one another. But, but I need you to consider this. And I need you to ask yourself this question. Am I using my hospitality to serve God's kingdom purposes? And if that is true of you, yes and amen. Praise God for that. I, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Or am I using my hospitality to serve my own selfish and self-centered purposes? In other words, am I only being hospitable to whom, those whom I like and or deem acceptable at Carlisle? Am I only being hospitable to those whom I like or those who I kind of want to get to know or those who I really are kind of like me? Or am I seeking to serve as many people as possible at this church? Well, if not, if, if this is not you, or if, you, if you're wondering, man, Pastor James, do I fall into this category? Consider some of these questions. Do I serve my next-door neighbors with the same love, joy, and excitement that I serve those whom I, well, I joyfully welcome into my home, daily, weekly, monthly, however you have people over, do I serve my next-door neighbors with the same love, joy, and excitement that I serve those whom I joyfully welcome to my home? Now, listen to me. This may be an oxymoron for your neighbor. Do they see you always having people over, always having barbecues, always having these things, and people in and out your house, but them, their next, your, next, their, your next door neighbor, you never interact with them. You never talk to them. You're never hospitable to them. Listen, as God's people, God has not called us to this. He has not called us to be self-centered people who are only thinking about ourselves. Our fellowship is not about us. Our fellowship is about the fellowship of believers and the body of Christ and expanding his kingdom and sharing in the glory of God. We're not just have, trying to have parties to have parties. We're not just having CG groups to have CG groups. How often do I have the opportunity to introduce someone New at my, one of my gatherings. How often do you invite someone new? Someone who maybe has never been to your house before. Someone who maybe is sitting alone. Maybe it's a jolly elder. Maybe it's someone from a different racial or ethnic background. Maybe it's someone who maybe you have to pick up just so they can come to your gathering because they don't have a car. 
When was the last time that you invited someone different into my home? Someone that maybe wasn't expected or someone who I would have to introduce other people to because the people that I normally hang out with, they wouldn't know this person. When was the last time that you invited an unbeliever into your home? Somebody that doesn't know Jesus, maybe he's not walking with him, doesn't know a thing about Christianity. If you mention the word Imago Day, you would actually have to explain it to them. Why is this important to practice genuine hospitality? Why is it important to manifest this within the church? You know, yesterday I was at Synergos finishing up my sermon, and uh, I didn't do it on Friday, so I'm sorry if you went by Friday, I wasn't there, but I did go Saturday. I got to see some people. I saw the pokes there. That was, that was nice for a minute. There was a, young woman, there was a young woman sitting across from me, and she noticed that I was talking to a lot of people, so she figured, you must be a pastor. I was like, yeah, I am a pastor. And all my people kind of live down here, so, you know, uh, I, I meet a lot of people. I, she was uh, a Christian. She went to a local church nearby. Um, she said she was excited about the work. She heard about the work at Carlisle. She was excited about it. But she asked me this question. She said, how do we be, I, I mentioned what, what I'm preaching on today, and she asked me this question. She says, how do we become the Good Samaritan? How do we become the Good Samaritan? And listen, my response to her was simply this. Um, I said, I don't believe the Scripture calls us to be the Good Samaritan. I think our, the Scripture calls us to follow in Christ's example as Him being the Good Samaritan. You see, a lot of times we want to be the hero of the story. We want to be the one who's the Good Samaritan, but guess what? That's not us. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who was going up the road to Jericho, left the throne room of heaven to come down and be here with us. Jesus is the one who saw our plight and our sorrow and had compassion towards us. Jesus is the one who drew near to us in our weakness, who cared for us in our sorrows, who offered himself as the only sacrifice able to be able to purify us from all sin. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. And, and brothers and sisters, listen, you cannot be the hero of the story. And guess what? That's okay. That's all right. Jesus, allow Jesus to be who he is. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and life. He is the lily of the valley. He is the rose of Sharon. He is our God and our great Redeemer. Brothers and sisters, don't take away from the story that it's about you. It's not about you, but it's all about him. And as we follow him in his example, as weak and as frail, as fearful, as clumsy as we are, as we seek to follow Jesus in his example, we become like him. We grow more and more into Christ's likeness as we follow his example that he's given us. So what is he inviting you to do? Look with me in verse 37. Then Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Notice the invitation as well as the ambiguity within the story. Jesus' invitation 
to this lawyer echoes into our hearing today. This man has clearly heard and he clearly understands the story, but here's the question that remains unseen and unknown. Will he obey? Will he obey? In other words, how will this man respond to Jesus' directive to go and do likewise? It's a good reminder for us that the question isn't, why can't I become a good neighbor? The real question is, will I choose to be a good neighbor? Will I choose to be a good neighbor? Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and we do love you that you have chosen to be our good neighbor. You are the good Samaritan. And Father, forgive us when we want to take your place in the story. None of us are worthy to to take the place of Jesus. So forgive us for our proud and arrogant hearts. Forgive us for thinking, God, that we're better than we really are. God, we are the man. We are the needy ones. We are the weak and the feeble, the exploited ones of this earth. We are the, we are, um, the broken children, the children who need to be adopted by an all-loving God. Our need is always before you. And Father, you always respond in great, kind, in, in great kindness and with great care and intentionality. God, help us to model that in our own life. Help us to model you as being our good Samaritan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields Jr., lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the south end of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at soldiercarlisle.com. God bless.